Chapter 11 The Sinner's Natural Power and Moral Weakness Of whom a man is overcome, of the same is he brought in bondage. 2 Peter 2.19 Now I intend to discuss the moral condition of the sinner. Roman numeral 1 The first important fact to be noted is that all people naturally have free will, and not any less so for being sinners. By natural freedom, I do not mean that they have a right to do as they please, for this can by no means be true. Nor do I mean that they are free agents merely in the sense of being able to do as they will to do. In fact, people sometimes can and sometimes cannot accomplish their purposes of will. Be this as it may, however, moral liberty does not consist in the power to accomplish one's purposes. You are aware that some old philosophers define liberty of will as the power to do what you will to do. For many reasons, this cannot be the true idea of freedom of the will. Look at the department of doing that is embraced in muscular action. The simple fact is that some of our muscles are not under the control of the will at all while others are under its control by a law of the sternest necessity. In regard to this latter class, all the freedom there is pertains to the will. None of it pertains to the action of the muscles controlled by the will. It is then an absolute mistake to deny the location of freedom where it is, and to place it where it is not. If there is any such thing as necessity in the universe, it is found in the absolute control held by the will over those physical muscles that are placed under its control. The obedience of the muscles is absolute. It is not free or voluntary in any sense whatsoever. Therefore, it is absurd to place human freedom there. This freedom is in the will itself, and it consists in its power of free choice. To do or not to do, this is its option. It has by its own nature the function of determining its own choices. The soul wills to do or not to do, and thus it is a moral sovereign over its own activities. In this fact lies the foundation for moral activity. A being so constituted that he can will to do or not to do, and also has knowledge and appreciation of his moral obligations, is a moral agent. None other can be. It deserves special notice here that every person knows that he has a conscience that tells him how he should act as well as a moral power in the exercise of which he can either follow or resist its admonitions. 
That a person is free in the sense of determining his own activities is proved by each person's own consciousness. This proof does not require any series of reasoning. It is as strong as it needs to be without any reasoning at all. A person is just as much aware and as well aware of originating his own acts as he is of acting at all. Does he really act himself? Yes. Does he know that he acts himself? Yes. How does he know these things? By consciousness. But he has the same evidence of being free, for this is equally proved by his own consciousness. Even further, a person can distinguish between those acts in which he is free and those in which he is acted upon by influences independent of his own choice. He knows that in some things he is a recipient of influences and of actions exerted upon himself, while in other things he is not a recipient in the same sense, but is a voluntary actor. The fact of this distinction proves the possession of free agency. The difference to which I now refer is one of everyday consciousness. Sometimes a person cannot tell where his thoughts come from. He cannot trace the origins of the impressions made upon his mind. They may be from above, or they may be from beneath. He knows only a little of their source and little about them, except that they are not his own free choices. Of his own acts of will there can be no such uncertainty. He knows their origin. He knows that they are the product of an original power in himself for which he is compelled to hold himself primarily responsible for the actions thereof. Not only does he have this direct consciousness, but he has, as already suggested, the testimony of his own conscience. This ability, by its very nature, takes notice of his moral acts, requiring certain acts of will and forbidding others. This ability is an essential condition of free moral agency. Possessing this and man's other mental powers, he must be free and under moral obligation. It is inconceivable that man should be under moral law and government without the power of free moral action. The logical condition of the existence of a conscience in man is that he should be free. It is evident that man is free from the fact that he is conscious of praise or blame. He could not reasonably blame himself unless it were a first truth that he is free. By a first truth, I mean one that is known to all by a necessity of their own nature. There are such truths, those that no one can help knowing, no matter how much they may desire to ignore them. Unless it were a first truth, necessarily known to all, that man is free, he could not praise or blame himself. 
As conscience implies moral force, so where there is a conscience, it is impossible for people really to deny moral responsibility. They cannot blame anyone except themselves for wrongdoing. Aware of the forewarning of conscience against the wrong act, how can they escape the conviction that the act was wrong? The Bible always treats people as free agents, commanding them to do or not to do things as if, of course, they had all the power necessary to obey such commands. A young minister once said to me, I preach that people should repent, but never that they can. I asked, Why not also preach that they can? He replied, The Bible does not say that they can. I replied that it would be most utter foolishness for a human legislature, having required certain action, to proceed to state publicly that people have the power to obey. The requirement is the strongest possible affirmation that, in the belief of the enacting power, the subjects are able to do the things required. If the lawmakers did not believe this, how could they reasonably require it? The very first assumption to be made concerning good rulers is that they have common sense and common honesty. To basically deny that God has these qualities is blasphemous. Freedom of will lies among the earliest and most resistless convictions. Probably no one living can remember his first idea of what he should do, his first convictions of right and wrong. It is also among our most irresistible convictions. We assume the freedom of our own will from the very beginning. The little child affirms it in his first juvenile efforts to accomplish his purposes. See him reach forth to get his food or his playthings. The little machinery of a freely acting agent begins to play long before he can understand it. He begins to act on his own responsibility long before he can estimate what or how great this responsibility is. The fact of personal responsibility is attached to us so that we might as well escape from ourselves as from this conviction. Roman numeral 2 While it is true and cannot be rationally denied that people have this attribute of moral liberty, it is equally true that they are morally enslaved. They are in moral bondage. They have liberty by created nature. The bondage comes by voluntary corruption and misuse of their powers. The Bible represents people as being in bondage, as having the power to resist temptation to sin, but as voluntarily yielding to those temptations. This reminds me of our dough-faced politicians who could, but do not and will not, resist the demands of the slave power. This is how it is with the bondage of sinners under temptation. 
The Bible represents Satan as ruling the hearts of men at his will, just as the men who exert the slave power of the South rule the dough faces of the North at their will, dictating the choice of our presidents and the entire legislation of the federal government. As Satan ruled Eve in the garden, so he now works in the children of disobedience. Ephesians 2.2 What the Bible here represents, experience proves to be true. Wicked people know that they are in bondage to Satan. Who do you think puts it into their hearts of young men to plan iniquity and drink it in like water? Is it not the devil? How many young men do we meet with who, when tempted, seem to have no moral stamina to resist, but are swept away by the first gust of temptation? People are in bondage to their desires and appetites. Desire that is excited leads them away just as it led Eve and Adam. What can be the reason that some young men find it so hard to give up the use of tobacco? They know that the habit is filthy and disgusting. They know it is not good for their health. However, appetite craves, and the devil helps on its demands. The poor victim makes a feeble effort to deliver himself, but the devil turns the screw again and holds him even tighter, and then drags him back to a harder bondage. It is the same when someone is in bondage to alcohol, and so with every form of worldly indulgence. Satan helps promote the influence of worldly desires, and he does not care much what the particular form of it may be as long as its power is strong enough to ruin the soul. It all plays into his hand and promotes his main purpose. Some people are in bondage to the love of money, to the fashions of the world, or to the opinions of mankind. They are enslaved by these and are led on in the face of the demands of duty. Every person is really enslaved who is in reality led counter to his convictions of duty. He is free only when he acts in accordance with those convictions. This is the true idea of liberty. A person is only free when reason and conscience control the will. For God made man, intelligent and moral beings, to act normally under the influence of their own enlightened conscience and reason. This is the type of freedom that God exercises and enjoys. None can be higher or nobler. However, when a moral force is in bondage to his ignoble appetites and passions, and is led by them to disregard the dictates of his conscience and of his reason, he is simply a galley slave to a very hard and cruel master. God made people to be free, giving them just such mental powers that they need in order to control their own activities as a rational being should want to do. 
Their bondage, then, is completely voluntary. They choose to resist the control of reason and submit to the control of appetite and passion. Every unrepentant person is aware of actually being in bondage to temptation. What person who is not saved from sin through grace does not know that he is an enigma to himself? I would have little respect for anyone who would say that he was never ashamed of himself and who never found himself doing things he could not properly justify. I would be especially ashamed and afraid, too, if I were to hear a student say that he had never been affected with a sense of his moral weakness. Such ignorance would only show his complete lack of reflection and his consequent failure to notice the most obvious moral incidents of his inner life. Does he not know that his weakest desires still carry his will, the strongest convictions of his reason and conscience, to the contrary? This is a most guilty condition, because it is so completely voluntary. It is very needless. It is quite contrary to the convictions of his reason and of his understanding, and it is opposed to his convictions of God's righteous demands. To go counter to such convictions, he must be exceedingly guilty. Of course, such conduct must be most detrimental. The sinner acts in most certain opposition to his own best interests so that if he has the power to ruin himself, this path will certainly do it. The course he pursues is of all others best suited to destroy both body and soul. How, then, can it be anything except detrimental to himself? He practically denies all moral obligation, yet he knows the fact of his moral obligation and he denies it in the face of his clearest convictions. How can this be otherwise than harmful? I have often asked sinners how they could explain their own conduct. The honest ones answer, I cannot at all. I do not understand it myself. The real explanation is that while by created nature they are free moral agents, yet by their obsession with sin they have sold themselves into moral bondage, and they are really slaves to Satan and their own lusts. This is a state of deep moral degradation. It is most disgraceful. Everybody feels this in regard to certain forms of sin and certain classes of sinners. We all feel that drunkenness is beastly. We regard a drunkard as being well on the way to acting like a beast. See him staggering about, mentally intoxicated, and reeking in his own filth. Is he not almost a beast? No for we must ask pardon of beasts for this comparison. For not one beast is so vulgar and vile, 
not one beast stirs up in our hearts such a sense of voluntary degradation. Compared with the self-intoxicated drunkard, any one of them is a noble creature. We all say this as we look only from our human standpoint, but there is another and a better standpoint. How do angels look upon this self-made drunkard? They see in him someone who was made only a little lower than themselves, and one who might have aspired to be their companion, yet he chose rather to lower himself to a level with swine. Oh, how their souls must shudder at the sight of such self-made degradation! It is too much for angels to bear to see the noble quality of intellect discarded, and still nobler moral qualities rejected and trodden underfoot, as if they were only a hindrance. How they must feel! The drunkard is not alone in the contempt that his carnal degradation results in. Observe the tobacco smoker. The correct judgment of community demands that by conventional laws the smoker should be excluded from waiting rooms, hotel rooms, public transportation, churches, and indeed all really decent places. Yet for the sake of this offensive indulgence, the smoker is willing to descend into places that are not decent. See him sneak out of his place among respectable people and gather with rough and rebellious people for the sake of his filthy indulgence. If he were only required to assemble all day in the society to which he sinks himself by this indulgence, it might warn him of the cost of his filthy habit. It might help to open his eyes. I have taken these examples of fleshly indulgence as illustrations of the real degradation of sin. In these cases, the good sense of mankind has been displayed by the level of corruption to which they entrust these adherents of low self-indulgence. If we only saw things in their right light, we would take the same view of the moralist. I remember talking with one leading moralist who said, how can I act from regard to God or to what is right? How can I go to a religious meeting from the high motive of pleasing God? I can go from a desire to promote my own selfish ends, but how can I go for the sake of pleasing God? Yes, that is precisely his difficulty and his sin. He does not care how little he pleases God. That is the least of his concerns. The very lowest class of causes influences his will and his life. He stands a great distance away from the reach of the highest and noblest. His self-made degradation and his exceeding great sin consists in this. It is the same with the miser when he gets beyond all causes except the love of hoarding, when his practical question is not how he will honor the human race or bless his generation or glorify his maker, 
but how he can make a few dollars. Even when urged to pray, he would ask, What profit will I have if I do pray to him? When you find a man so incapable of being moved by noble motives, what a wretch he is! How unspeakably miserable! I could also bring before you the ambitious scholar who is too low in his aims to be influenced by the exalted motive of doing good and who feels only that which touches his reputation. Is not this exceedingly low and ignoble? What would you think of the preacher who would lose all regard for the welfare of souls and care only about building up his reputation? What would you say of him? You would declare that he was too shameful and too wicked to live and was fit only for hell. What would you think of one who could shine like Lucifer among the morning stars of intellect and genius, but who would reduce himself to the low and miserable business of seeking applause and desiring to be complimented for his talents? Would you not say that such self-seeking is unutterably contemptible? With all heaven from above calling them on to lofty purposes and efforts, there they are, working their manure rakes and searching after some little recognition for their small selves. See that ambitious man who so wants to please everybody that he conforms his own opinion to everyone else's opinions and never has one that is really his own? Must not he be low enough to satisfy any of those whose ambition seems strangely reversed, who only strive to dive and sink but never to soar, whose inclinations all tend downward and never up? One would suppose they would have degradation enough to satisfy any common ambition. All this comes because of bondage to low-minded selfishness. It is sad that there should be so much of this in our world that public sentiment rarely measures it in any way near its real nature. Remarks Our subject reveals the case of those who are convicted of what is right but cannot be persuaded to do it. For example, on the subject of temperance or abstaining from alcohol, he is convicted as to his duty. He knows that he should completely reform, yet he will not change. Every temperance lecture carries conviction, but the next temptation sweeps it away, and he returns like the dog to his vomit. Observe, though, that every successive course of temperance, conviction, and temptation's triumph leaves him weaker than before, and very soon will find him completely defeated. Miserable man! How certainly he will die in his sins! No matter what the form of the temptation may be, he who is convinced of his duty yet takes no corresponding action, 
is on the high road to perdition. Inevitably, this bondage grows stronger and stronger with every fresh trial of its strength. Every time you are convinced of duty and yet resist that conviction and refuse to act in accordance with it, you become more and more helpless. You commit yourself more and more to the control of your iron-hearted master. Every new case renders you only the more fully a helpless slave. There may be some young men and women reading this who have already made themselves a moral wreck. There may be boys not yet sixteen who have already trampled upon their consciences. You might have already learned to go against all your convictions of duty. How horrible! Your chains are growing stronger every day. With each day's resistance, your soul is more deeply and hopelessly lost. Poor, miserable, dying sinner, he that being often reproved hardeneth his neck shall suddenly be destroyed, and that without remedy. Proverbs 29.1 Suddenly the waves dash you upon the rocks, and you are gone. Your friends move solemnly along the shore and look out upon those rocks of damnation on which your soul is wrecked. Weeping as they go, they mournfully say, There is the wreck of one who knew his duty but did not do it. Thousands of times the appeals of conviction came home to his heart, but he learned to resist them. He made it his business to resist, and tragically, he was only too successful. How insane is the delusion that the sinner's situation, while still in his sins, is growing better. The drunkard might as well imagine that he is growing better because every temperance lecture convicts him of his sin and shame, even though every next day's temptation leaves him as drunk as ever. Growing better? There can be no delusion as false and so fatal as this. You see the force of this delusion in clearer light when you notice how insignificant the issues are that influence the soul against all the tremendous purposes of God's character and kingdom. Must not that be a strong and fearful delusion that can make considerations so insignificant outweigh motives so vast and momentous? The sin of this condition is to be estimated by the insignificance of the motives that control the mind. What would you think of a youth who could murder his father for a dollar? You would exclaim, What? He was bribed to murder his father for such a small amount? You would consider his sin to be even greater by how much less the temptation was. Our subject shows the need of the Holy Spirit to impress the truth on the hearts of sinners.
you can also see how certainly sinners will be lost if they grieve the Spirit of God away. Your earthly friends might be discouraged, yet you still might be saved. But if the Spirit of God becomes discouraged and leaves you, then your doom is sealed forever. Woe also to them when I depart from them. Hosea 9.12 This departure of God from the sinner signals the knell of his lost soul. Then the mighty angel begins to ring the great bell of eternity. One more soul going to its eternal doom.